Please turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 15. We've begun our study of chapter 15. Last time we worked our way through verse 16, and this morning our text is verses 17 through 35. So this is Eliphaz, a so-called friend of Job, addressing Job. And uh, hear God's word. I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield. Because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist and has lived in desolate cities in houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins, he will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possession spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time. His branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine, cast off his blossom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. Scenario that has surfaced again and again in our study of Job is how Job's friends wrongly apply truth. And this makes it difficult to know when to accept what they say. For one moment, they can be rightly expounding biblical truth. We find ourselves agreeing with them. And then the next moment, we find ourselves appalled by how this truth is being wrongly applied to Job. Just because something we believe is true doesn't mean that we should apply it willy-nilly to any situation. For example, in chapter 5, verse 13, going clear back to chapter 5, verse 13, Eliphaz is quoted as saying, He, that is God, catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. And since the book of Job is scripture, we know right away that the Holy Spirit accurately quoted Eliphaz, But that doesn't mean that what Eliphaz has said is necessarily truth. The principle is the same thing when the devil is quoted in Scripture. Yes, the Holy Spirit has made sure that the devil is quoted accurately, but that doesn't mean that we are to accept what the devil says as truth. Of course, in contrast, when God is quoted in Scripture, we know it's truth. The point is that when the devil or people are quoted, we have to evaluate the truthfulness of what they say in light of the rest of Scripture. And, of course, we would also understand that the apostles were witnesses of of Christ and were correct in what they said. But what Eliphaz said in in Job chapter 5.13 is quoted 
as Holy Spirit-inspired truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 19 and 20. And Paul correctly applies these words to foolish unbelievers. He, he says that these words apply to God catching the wise in their craftiness, that these words apply to foolish unbelievers who think they are wise enough to not need God and his word. Their attempts at making a life for themselves apart from God will come to nothing. Well, now let's think about how the Holy Spirit has used this verse as quoted in Job in contrast to how it is used in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the truth is applied to fools who reject God, but in the book of Job, these the statement is applied by Eliphaz to Job. Is this a correct application? Well, it can't be because the Holy Spirit has told us clearly and directly that Job is a blameless and upright man who, turns, who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, of course, like Job, none of us, uh, none of us believers is perfect in wisdom, but it is highly inappropriate to use Eliphaz's quote against a fellow believer like, like he did against Job. The same scenario is found again happening in chapter 15, verse 14, closer now to the context of what we are considering this morning. We read Eliphaz saying, What is man that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? And it's an interesting thing that this verse is actually quoted in our Westminster Confession of Faith as a proof text for the truth that death and Adam's corruption were, quote, conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. So this verse was considered by our forefathers to be a verse that rightly teaches the biblical doctrine of total depravity. Nevertheless, this verse is wrongly applied to Job, who is a believer. As a person of faith, trusting in the Messiah to come, Job was justified in the sight of God. And through the cleansing blood of Christ to come, was made perfect at his death. Job, by God's grace, is now pure and righteous in heaven. And so is every other sinner who has died trusting in Christ. And so man can be pure and righteous. Not every man is, but those who trust Christ are. And some Eliphaz was right if we take him to be saying that man is born depraved in sin and remains such apart from the saving grace of God, and man certainly cannot make himself pure or righteous. But regardless of what Eliphaz may have been implying, Job has never claimed to be without sin. He's never claimed to have made himself pure and righteous. In fact, Job said back in chapter 14, 4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. The unclean cannot make anything clean. Nevertheless, our clean, sinless Savior does make the unclean clean when he cleanses us from sin through his blood shed on the cross. And so total depravity is a real thing, and Eliphaz is right in teaching it, but it is wrong to apply the doctrine of total depravity to a particular sinner like Job, who has been justified in the sight of God, who has been given a new nature, and insist that his depravity is why he has suffered so terribly. So I'm essentially talking here about sinful judging. And I would begin by, as, as we consider the, the sinful judging of Eliphaz, um, I would begin by saying there is a place for judging. Um, in fact, we make judgments all the time. Uh, we should be making judgments, and um, especially as we think about the decisions we are making and we ought to be judging 
whether or not what we are doing is the Lord's will. Uh, Sessions make judgments about the credibility of a member's profession of faith before adding him to the role of the church. Uh, When a Christian young man or woman decides to date or court, he had better be determined to judge whether or not that person's love interest is a Christian and whether or not that person they believe is going to make a good loving spouse. And when you go into your community and think about the calling to be a witness to Christ, you should be judging which of your neighbors need to hear the gospel. At the same time, we need to remember there is such a thing as sinful judging, which is the point of the Lord in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, when the Lord says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so the idea is that when we judge others, we need to make sure we apply the same scrutiny to ourselves. There is a type of judgment that is ungodly, a type of judgment that cannot be justified. There is a sinful judging that is associated with being quick to speak and quick to anger and being, while at the same time, slow to hear. There is sinful judging of people's hearts as though we can infallibly know their thinking and their motives. Eliphaz sinfully judged Job by being unwilling to take Job at his word when he said that he was repenting of sin, that he was not hiding some gross sin that he's committed. It seemingly didn't matter what Job said and how he defended himself. Eliphaz had determined what was going on with Job, and nothing was going to deter him from his conclusions. And what we find in verses 17 through 35 is a pattern of sinful judging in which Eliphaz sets forth in this kind of repeating pattern, first, what is going on with Job? And then, second, why this is going on with Job? So what and why? And the basic premise that underlies what Job is saying in this section is that he knows everything that is going on with Job. And this is prideful on Eliphaz's part. And this is exactly the type of sinful judging that the Lord has condemned. Eliphaz's pride is manifested in how he introduces this section, verses 17 through 19, where he says, I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. Following the lead of Richard Belcher's commentary, I would paraphrase what Eliphaz is saying in these verses this way. Job, you need to listen to me because I am telling you what is an established doctrine. What I am telling you is a traditional system of belief. And I would have you, um, for those of you who have been in our evening services lately and thinking about what what is going on in 2 Thessalonians, where Paul says to hold to the traditions. Um, Essentially, Eliphaz is saying, Job, you need to listen to me and hold to the traditions that I hold to. Job, you need to hold to what I am teaching, because these teachings go way back, even to the time when we first lived in the land that God gave us, and we were isolated from the contaminating influence of the strangers, of of unbelievers around us. Let's step back and think about what he's saying for a moment. Well, there's no doubt, right, that if a traditional belief a tradition is grounded solidly in scripture, it is to be held. But just because a teaching has been handed down doesn't make it truth. 
It's not necessarily prideful on Eliphaz's part to hold to traditions. Again, the Apostle Paul tells us to do that in 2 Thessalonians. But the pride is insisting that he knows exactly what is going on with Job. The pride is seen in not asking questions and trying to understand Job's perspective. The pride is seen in Eliphaz not being willing to question the tradition of his fathers in the light of Job's testimony. The pride is seen in Eliphaz insisting that he knows exactly how the truth is to be applied to Job. And in three different ways, Eliphaz sets forth as fact. This fact is, as far as Eliphaz is concerned, fact that Job is suffering the judgment of the wicked. Eliphaz's sinful judgment is based on the logical construct that, is, that, that goes this way, that if someone is experiencing what the wicked experience, then that person must be wicked. It's that simple. If, if someone is experiencing what the wicked experience, that person must be wicked. And so we find Eliphaz laying out what is happening to Job, the different ways that he is showing himself to be experiencing what the wicked experience. Um, we find this in verses 20 through 24, verses 27 through 30, and then verses 32 through 35. And again, I said there's this repeating pattern. So between the what's is the why, which is verses 25 and 26, and then verse 31. So we begin with the what. We begin with what Job is experiencing according to Eliphaz. And in verses 20 through 24, Eliphaz is essentially saying this, Job, I know you are a wicked man because like the wicked, you are never able to relax. Your life is is marked by this continual upheaval in which you never find peace. So verses 20 through 24, the wicked man writhes in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears and prosperity, the destroyer, destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. In verse 20, we are told that a wicked man writhes in pain all his days. And then notice through by use of Hebrew parallelism that we learn um, from the second part of verse 20 that this man who is in pain is ruthless. And so the word for ruthless is the same word that was used back in chapter 7, verse 23. And there Job uses it in reference to the people who stole his livestock. Um, the event seems to be what is on Eliphaz's mind as he moves into verse 21. He describes the wicked man as hearing terrifying sounds or dreadful sounds. And the Hebrew word here for sounds can refer to any number of sounds, but usually it means the sound of a voice. And in this case, the wicked man hears dreadful sounds. And the word dreadful or terrifying, depending upon your translation, refers to the fear the terror, the dread that comes upon a person in the context of a disaster. And so Job experienced terrifying sounds, did he not? Uh, Terrifying voices in the three reports that came to him from messengers, two of which told him that his servants had been murdered and his livestock stolen by foreign raiders. 
One reported lightning had killed servants and his sheep. And then Eliphaz adds that if the wicked man is experiencing prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. Uh, By destroyer, he's probably referring to those raiders, as well as the lightning that stole Job's wealth. We also must not forget that Job also heard dreadful sounds in that additional time when that report came to him of all ten of his children being killed in a freak accident. In chapter 22, verse 10, so this is looking forward, uh, as part of Eliphaz's third speech against Job, he will openly and directly say Job is being overwhelmed by sudden terror, the very same word that is translated as dreadful in our text, chapter 15, verse 21. So later he will just straight out say, dreadful things are happening to you, Job. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 25, Job said that he has dreaded, same word as verse 21, what has befallen him. And so Eliphaz here in chapter 15 connects this Hebrew word with the experience of the wicked man and in this indirect way condemns Job. And I think as we consider this, we really ought to be asking a question something like this. Can you believe this? Can you believe this? Eliphaz is insinuating the physical pain that Job is experiencing and the dreaded words of the messengers telling him of the loss of his property and of his children. These are proof that he is a wicked man. In fact, he is accused of being a ruthless man, which means that he has unjustly oppressed the weak for his own gain. Eliphaz has judged that this is why Job has lost his prosperity to the destroyer. In verses 22 through 24, the wicked man is described as living in constant fear as he anticipates doom. In verse 22, he is afraid of judgment from God or man or both. He's afraid of the dark because he figures he's going to meet up with the sword of those he has wronged, or the sword refers here to the judgment of God that he fears hangs over his head. Verse 23 describes the wicked man as one who is cast into abject poverty to the degree that he wonders if he's going to have enough food. The second half of verse 23 says he is convinced that the day of darkness is ready at his hand, which indicates that the wicked man has a guilty conscience. Day of, uh, a day of darkness is what you consider the day of, Lord, of the Lord to be if you believe that facing God is going to bring wrathful judgment. I suppose that if you are anticipating at any moment the judgment of God coming upon you in this life and in the life to come, every day would be a day of darkness. But notice Job has described more than once a fear of the future. That sounds exactly what Eliphaz is describing. And uh, this is not a a mistake that Eliphaz has picked up on this. In chapter 7, Job has described a future without hope when he says such things as, in chapter 7, verse 6, my days come to their end without hope. Or chapter 7, verse 7, my eye will never again see good. Or chapter 7, verse 9, he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. And Eliphaz, according to him, it's the wicked man who lives like this in constant anticipation of doom. The norm for the wicked man is, as verse 24 says, that 
Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. If you think about a king as he's getting ready for battle, he's going to be nervous, he's going to be anxious as he anticipates the future, as he anticipates what's going to happen and what that battle is going to involve. And the wicked man shares that same nervousness regarding his future. Distress and anguish are synonyms. In the Hebrew, that Eliphaz uses to describe how the wicked feel as they face hard circumstances under the judgment of God. Job uh, said back in chapter 11 that he was speaking out of the anguish of his spirit, using the very same word translated as distress in verse 24. And by using the same word in connection now with the wicked, Eliphaz is highlighting, Job, you've admitted to being in anguish like the wicked. The word terrify was used by Job in chapter 9, verse 34, and in chapter 13, verse 21, in reference to his dread of meeting with God. Based on the distressing events God has brought into Job's life, Job has been terrified to think of what a meeting with God might be like. And Job added in chapter 7, verse 14, that God was terrifying him with nightmares and Eliphaz has apparently picked up on these admissions and is pointing out that such terror is what marks the life of the wicked as he experiences one anguishing event after another from the hand of God. Well, clearly Job does have a fear of God's judgment and he he wavers in having hope for the future, but why? That's the question, right? Why? Why is he wavering? Why is he struggling? Why is he terrified? Why is he experiencing anguish? Is it because he has a guilty conscience? like the wicked man of Eliphaz in chapter 15? No, Job is not struggling with a guilty conscience. He's struggling, though, with how God is treating him. He can't understand, based on how his life is going, why God is against him. And he's correctly reasoned that if he goes on to die with God against him, he has no hope. His struggle is that he can't understand why God would be against him. The problem is that by faith, he knows he should be right with God. He understands the gospel of God's provision through the coming Christ for sinners. So why, God, am I experiencing this, that you are against me? What he's experiencing doesn't make sense in the light of God being a covenant God who has promised to send the Christ who forgives sins for the sake of the coming Christ. And yet Eliphaz doesn't care for any of this. He doesn't care anything about Job's struggle, he's convinced that the struggles of the wicked man line up exactly with what Job is going through. In verses 27 through 30, Eliphaz presents yet another assessment of Job's life that is designed to paint him as a wicked man. And the flow of the passage actually goes like this, beginning at verse 27, rather than the word because, I would prefer to have the word though, And it would read this way, though he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist and has lived in desolate cities and houses that no one has inhabited, he will not be rich. His wealth will not endure, nor will his possession spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots and by the breath of his mouth, he will depart. And so the main flow of thought is that though the wicked man has enjoyed a lot of wealth, it's not going to last. Eliphaz is painting 
For us, the picture of a wicked man who has become wealthy, he's living a life of luxury, which in that day and age was pictured by this man who is extremely fat. He's so wealthy that he has been able to take possession of and rebuild cities and houses that had previously been deserted. Uh, some suggest that these houses or these cities were made desolate by conquest. In other words, that the wicked man has become wealthy by taking even cities, entire cities and houses from others. But more than once along these lines, Job's friends have insinuated that Job has gotten his wealth by dishonest means involving oppression of innocent people, which is even insinuated by the word ruthless of verse 20. The ruthless man, this guy who writhes in pain, of course, Job is to real, you know, he's one of these who's writhing in pain, even as Eliphaz is saying these things. Um, this guy that writhes in pain is ruthless. Well, ruthless is a person who, a person who's ruthless, oppresses others, t- steals from others, becomes rich by oppressing others. Some think that that's what's going on here now in verse 27 and verse 28, that he, that he has gathered to himself all of this wealth, taking over cities and houses by conquest. And others think that these are cities or houses that were just built out of ruins, that they were just devastated by war, people had abandoned them, but the wicked man is able to come in with, with all of his extreme wealth and power and to rebuild these things. But the bottom line is that these cities, these houses of the wicked, will one day become rubble. While there may be hope on the the man's part of his wealth stretching out and thinking that he's going to gain more and more possessions, his expansion is going to come to an end. In fact, it's going to shrink into nothing. While light, as we think of the concept of light, it brings to mind life and prosperity, the wicked man, we are told, knows nothing but darkness. Picturing his wealth like that of a plant, the fire of God's judgment dries up its shoots, and in the end, the man himself dies. And the main point is that the, wicked's man, the wicked man's wealth will not endure. And you understand, all of this is meant for Job. Eliphaz's words are designed to lead Job to think about how his wealth has been taken from him. Job 1 tells us that Job had so many possessions that he was, quote, the greatest of all the people of the East. He very quickly lost that status. The first attack on his property was by the Sabaeans who killed his servants, took his oxen and donkeys. Eliphaz's reference to fire drying up the wicked man's shoots is probably referring to that second attack on Job's property when lightning fell from heaven and burned up his sheep and his servants. The third attack came from the Chaldeans who killed more servants who who then took Job's camels. Eliphaz is saying, Job, you match you match the wicked man. And then continue to expound the what of Job's experiences. Verses 32 through 35 describe the emptiness that marks the life of the wicked man. His payment for how he has lived his life will be a life of emptiness. Eliphaz paints the wicked man's emptiness using a number of figures that that can be taken in several ways. Uh, We begin with the explanation that Eliphaz is continuing to refer to the wicked man losing his wealth. From the realm of plants and farming, Eliphaz sets forth a number of figures where prosperity, like it's, things are starting to look good, but then 
they don't come to fruition. Coming out of winter, a branch never becomes green. A grapevine sheds its fruit before it ripens. The blossoms of an olive tree fall off, perhaps by frost or drought, and so the olives never develop. So no matter how fruitful the wicked may appear, in the end there is only going to be emptiness. Another interpretation, and this is really horrible, if this is in fact what Eliphaz is doing, um, that in fact he's using figures and words all through these verses that are meant to reference the wicked man not having children to carry on his name. In other words, Eliphaz is implying that for Job to lose his children indicates that he is a wicked man under the wrath of God. Notice the vocabulary that Eliphaz uses throughout this section is very telling. A branch. So we find reference to a branch in verse 32. A branch is often used in biblical language to refer to one's ancestor, such as Jesus being a branch of Jesse. For the wicked man, his branch will not be green. Fruit dying, blossoms falling off before their time, very easily could be a figure of losing one's children. And then notice the loaded words that Eliphaz is Eliphaz uses verse 34, he speaks of barren. Verse 36, he uses the word conceive, give birth. He refers to a womb. Even the reference to tents can very well bring to mind where a man would dwell with his family. Then the company, that the company of the godless is barren is a way of saying that the wicked man is going to lose the people that he is close to. Fire consuming the tents of bribery refers to judgment that comes against a wicked man's home because of how he has used bribery to unjustly get his way. The words conceive, give birth, and womb naturally lead us to think of children. Eliphaz uses these words as a figure of speech to say that one thing leads to another. If you sow trouble, you're going to reap trouble. And the word trouble in the Hebrew means sorrow over one's suffering. And Job in chapter 3, verse 10, remarked that his life was troubled. In 4, verse 8, Eliphaz said that those who reap trouble are those who plowed iniquity and who sowed trouble. And to sow trouble means in the Hebrew to bring sorrow and suffering to others. Eliphaz pointed out back in chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, that this trouble doesn't just come from nowhere. In 1535, here in 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 35, Eliphaz makes it abundantly clear that this trouble is the fruit of wickedness. And since Job is a troubled man, even by his own admission, nothing more needs to be said to prove his wickedness. This is the judgment that Eliphaz has made against Job. We're not even done because the worst is yet to come. He has also judged why Job is suffering. He allegedly knows Job's heart, Job's attitude, his motives. The first explanation offered by Eliphaz as to why the wicked man is experiencing the suffering that Job is also experiencing is found in verses 25 and 26. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield. The reason why the wicked man Job is living a life filled with dread is because he is living in defiance of God. What Eliphaz is depicting is a person who thinks that he can openly oppose God and win. 
He's describing a person who is stubborn in refusal to admit his wickedness and humble himself before God. He's like a soldier thinking that he can run against God and thinking that as long as he has this thick shield, it will protect him. What a comical picture Eliphaz presents, as though a person would have a chance of, of a running charge against God as long as he had a good shield. And based on what follows, we are probably to think of this shield as a symbol of wealth. It was a common thing. It is a common thing today for the wealthy to regard their money, their, their prosperity as security. But think of it. Eliphaz is purporting to know Job's attitude toward God to be one of insane hostility. For Job to be calling for a meeting with God so that he can question him is viewed by Eliphaz as based in an attitude of defiance and stubbornness. We also would add it, it, it portrays Job as having a very low view of God as though he can fight God with human weapons. Eliphaz has judged Job to be an arrogant fool who is in full-fledged rebellion against God. The second explanation that Eliphaz offers as to why Job is suffering is found in verse 31, namely that he is trusting in emptiness, deceiving himself. Verse 31, let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. Well, what does it mean to trust in emptiness? It's been defined this way in by one of the commentators is, quote, futile efforts directed to a false end. Futile efforts directed to a false end. If I was to think, for, if I was to imagine, this is all hypothetical, if I was to imagine that I could save myself through my own good works and began doing good works to that end, I would be trusting in emptiness. I would have a false goal of imagining that I could work myself into favor with God by works, and my efforts at that would be futile. That would be emptiness. Or if I were to imagine that a life of wealth is the way to a life of contentment and then were to gear my life toward building wealth, I would be trusting in emptiness. To stake one's life on things that won't last and things that don't satisfy, whether an idol or a religion or a philosophy or even one's self, is to trust in emptiness. All idolatry is a trust in emptiness. And by associating Job indirectly with the wicked man, Eliphaz is telling Job that he has figured out why Job is suffering. It's because he's trusting in emptiness. Eliphaz supposedly has been able to plumb Job's heart and to know what he trusts. My ESV study Bible has this note. Given what the reader knows about Job, this section ought to instill humility on the part of any person who seeks to pursue another with rebuke and should instill compassion for Job who endured not only the loss of his children, wealth, and health, but also endured the presumptuous, compounded, and condemning, quote, comfort, unquote, of his friends. Christopher Ash gives this warning in his commentary. The more we find ourselves in sympathy with the comforters, he's talking about Job's friends, the more we find ourselves in sympathy with the comforters, the less we have really grasped the gospel of grace. The root problem with Eliphaz is that he's not accounting for God's grace. He isn't accounting for the amazing power of God to use suffering for his glory 
rather than only as simple judgment and punishment. The gospel is all about God taking our suffering upon himself and the person of his son made incarnate so that our suffering is no longer a matter of punishment, no longer a matter of wrathful judgment. The gospel is all about, through Christ, God transforming suffering and death into events that are good for us spiritually. Death is for us believers, but the entrance into the glories of heaven. The gospel is all about God loving and accepting the worst of sinners and often even using suffering in the lives of his elect in love in order to humble them as part of bringing them to repentance. The gospel compels us to believe that many things are not as they appear. There are prosperous wicked who do not know Christ as Savior and whose wealth may not shrink away before they die. There are struggling Christians who do know Christ as Savior. Salvation of sinners we know to be something that begins with what God does in the heart and therefore is something we can't see. And as we counsel unbelievers and believers, let us recognize we are so limited in understanding what God is doing with any particular person at any particular time. Eliphaz's foolish and sinful judging leads to some very practical instruction. Before jumping to a conclusion about someone, carefully investigate, first of all, by hearing both sides. There are all kinds of proverbs that emphasize that point. Hear both sides. Have these men really asked Job, tell us in detail about your life, what's really going on? They're not interested in that. Second, investigate carefully by allowing for possible misunderstanding. That possibility should compel you to ask a lot of questions and be slow to form conclusions. Along these lines, allow for factors in the situation that may, that may be currently unaccounted for. Yeah, there is this tradition of maintaining that if you're wicked, you're going to be punished. If you're good, things are going to go well. Uh, that's not accounting for all of the various factors into which God, in which God operates. Acknowledge that you don't know everything and that you may have misjudged the situation. Believe what someone tells you unless you have absolute proof to the contrary. And that's, that's really at the heart of one of the main problems with these men with Job. They should be believing a fellow believer unless they have proof to the contrary. And proof is evidence based on facts that have been thoroughly established. In other words, as much as possible, we need to exercise what is called a judgment of charity. Love believes all things and hopes all things in the sense of trying to believe the best about people until absolute proof compels you otherwise. The default stance you should take with your covenant children and with other members of the church is that the Holy Spirit is at work in their hearts and that they have a love for Christ and that love is going to compel them to hate sin and to do what is pleasing to Christ as their Savior this means that when you find a church member appearing to need admonition or rebuke for sin, you don't automatically assume that they've sinned. You ask questions in a spirit of gentleness. Hope that they can give a good explanation about what has happened and be ready to believe it. 
If their response is defensive and it's not believable for good solid reasons, be convinced that upon hearing the admonitions of Scripture, they're going to respond appropriately with repentance. And if they don't, don't write them off, but pray and wait to see what the Holy Spirit does. Perhaps talk with them again later. But recognize that even as Christians, we don't always do what is right right away. Sanctification is often a process that takes time and comes in stages. And as I have reflected upon these things, thought occurred in the form of a question. Isn't it great that our salvation does not depend upon us living a perfect life? Isn't it great that knowing how patient God is with us, that we can be patient with one another? Don't be like a judging Eliphaz thinking that you infallibly know what and why things are going on in people's lives. Even if you know with certainty, even if you know with certainty that your brother has fallen into sin, remember the words of Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would spare us from ever being the kind of comforter that Eliphaz was to Job, that, Father, we would be so very careful about sinful judging, being ready to hear our brothers and sisters, ready to let them give a defense, ready to admit that we don't understand everything that is going on, for we are not infallible in our knowledge. We are not omniscient as you are. We cannot look into people's hearts and know their thinking and motives. Father, help us to remember these things, that we'd be very careful as we seek to help one another. And Father, we do recognize we need help. We, we sin against you in our thoughts, words, and deeds each day. We sin against each other, and we need each other. We need the mirror of your word, and we need others to help us see ourselves in that mirror of your word. So Lord, we thank you for admonitions and rebukes that are brought in love. And even if they're not brought in love, but they, they come to us with truth, things that we need to hear. Father, we pray that we would be ready to receive those things. But Father, we pray that we would be mindful that you are the one who knows hearts. You are the one who must work through your Holy Spirit. So Lord, let us give these things over to you and uh, Father, we pray that when we find ourselves and we find others suffering, that we, would be not, that we would not be ready to jump to the conclusion that these are wicked people receiving judgment. Father, we thank you that, in fact, we know because of what Christ has done that we are not receiving judgment, but that we possibly are receiving chastening, but that all is being sent in love. Father, we pray that we would judge with charity, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.